Hi there, my name is Adam Waters and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So at the end of this passage, I'm going to say the word of the Lord, and I would love it if you all would respond with thanks be to God. The scripture reading for today is Psalm 63, 1-11. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The word of the Lord. I love watching documentaries, especially uh, World War II documentaries. And I was watching one earlier this week. And in it, they tell the story of the Samuel B. Roberts. This is uh, Destroyer Escort 413, which was sunk during the Battle of Leyte off the island of Samar. Samar is the third largest island in the Philippine uh, island group. The ship was struck by a Japanese tornado and, or tor torpedo. And <laughs> interestingly enough, the only time I've ever seen a tornado in my life was in Japan. Was in, I'm from the Midwest. In Japan, I saw a tornado. Anyway, all right. Struck by a Japanese torpedo and sunk 30 minutes later with 90 of her crew. The remaining 120 floated in shark-infested waters for over 50 hours while awaiting a rescue that they were just not sure was ever going to come. Jack Euston, one of the survivors, tells of the ordeal, and he recalls how when they got into the water, it was on fire, uh, they were trying to cling to these rafts, not enough raft for the number of people, so they're dangling in the water. It wasn't long before they realized that they're surrounded by sharks. He says at one point, there was a shark nudged up against his leg, and he said, Lord Jesus, I will do whatever you want me to do if you get me out of this water. I will, my, my whole life's going to be different. And he prayed and prayed and prayed. He looked down, and the shark was gone. He said a couple seconds later, he heard his buddy crying out, and the shark got him. Serious, I think about what would I do in those situations? Who would I be crying out to? How would I be crying out? What would I promise in those situations? 
But perhaps unbelievably, the most um, maybe salient thing that he remembers out of this was the thirst. The thirst. The Philippine sun beating down upon them, floating in salt water, surrounded by water, and none of it can they drink. People would give in to the thirst, and they would drink more and more salt water and begin to hallucinate. He said one of his shipmates just started swimming away and said, I'm going home to see my mom. Just started swimming. People were crying out just ridiculous and incoherent words and ideas, all because of the salt water, which exasperated their dehydration. In fact, it actually advanced it and preceded it. Um, Till pretty soon, they were all barely alive and only a few were left. The reality was distorted because of this intense thirst within them for water and life. And all they could drink was undrinkable salt water. You see, the same holds true for our spiritual life. We were made to drink the pure water, the living water of God. And here on earth, living in a life uh, full of sin and sin surrounding us, it's like we're floating in a sea of undrinkable water. We have this thirst, we feel this thirst, yet instead of turning to the only true source of water that is good and fresh and sweet, we gobble up the water around us until pretty soon our reality becomes distorted and we don't see life as it really is. We grow sick and we die. Has there ever been a time in your life that you've had such a thirst for something that you thought you would die? Maybe you tried to quench that thirst with a person or a new relationship. Or maybe you wanted to buy a new puppy or you went shopping. Maybe you tried to quench that thirst with doubling down on a new idea, a new thought. Maybe you invested yourself into your work. But in the end, the more you drank, the more disillusioned you got, and the more your reality became distorted. Maybe you're in that season right now. Maybe you're in a season where I'm just not happy. I realized the other day, I've been talking to Elaine a lot about this, I'm 42 years old. I might be literally halfway through my life right now. And I think, is this where I want to be? I look ahead and I think the best is only it's yet to come. I have a lot I want to do. Yet everything now seems there's just more. I just want more. And I don't know where to find it. And so this, this psalm has just been so apropos for my life, and I believe it's going to be apropos for yours as well. You know, when we're not thirsting for God, when we, need what we, when we aren't, we need to realize that we're thirsting for something. Your thirst for God might be misdirected to an idol. I know that some of us sit here today and we think, well, I know as I read this passage, it says, I hunger and thirst for you. My soul faints for you, Lord. Some of you will say, I don't feel that at all. If anything, if I'm honest, I kind of don't care. The truth is, is that your thirst for anything in this world that is not of God is your hunger for God misapplied to something else. In other words, you're hunger and thirsting for God, you don't even realize it. So I want to talk about that today. We need to understand that our thirst for something can often be a thirst for God. And if we don't know that our thirst is intended to be quenched by God, we'll swallow the salt water of life 
and it will kill us in the end. So today we're in Psalm 63. 63, this is a Psalm of David. I'm grateful that Bree read the beginning. It says, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, it doesn't say when he was in the wilderness of Judah or what was happening when he was there. In the end, it really doesn't matter. The idea that David's in the wilderness is the idea that he's separated from the tabernacle, the central location of God's presence in the people, uh, in the Jewish faith at that time. The word wilderness is actually a really interesting word because and we get, it gets lost on us in English. We read wilderness and we think, oh, David was out in the woods. We think he was in the lush green forest of the Upper Peninsula or Colorado or Wyoming or something like that. But the wilderness of Judah, I assure you, is nothing like the forests of the American West. In fact, the word wilderness is the word midbar in Hebrew, and it actually means the place of the sending out. So we read in the Old Testament where the... um, the scapegoat would be, the sins of the people would be put on this scapegoat, and the scapegoat would be driven into the midbar, the place of sending out. It's not a great place. For those of you who have been to Israel and have seen the wilderness of Judah, you'll know it's more like, it's less like midbar and more like Mars, okay? Nothing grows, lots of rocks, it's very hot, micro-elevation changes, it's not a fun place to be. Not only is it not a fun place to be, but when David's in the wilderness, very often in the Old Testament, he's running from somebody. Either it's from Saul, who's seeking to kill his life, or the Philistines, who are chasing after him, or he's chasing an enemy of God. It's often for David a place of fighting. Nevertheless, he's away from God's presence. He looks around him, he sees the dry and rocky soil, he sees the lack of growth of anything. And it moves him to write this psalm in the midst of the troubles that are weighing down his life. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. First thing to note is that David cries out to God and admits his thirst for God. He doesn't misplace this hunger and thirst for God, his fainting after God. He doesn't say, Lord, I really want to win. If I can win this battle, everything will be okay. If I could get this much more wealthy as the king of Israel, everything will be okay. No. Here's this king admitting that the primary desire in his life is a thirst after God. He's declaring that there is no other God For him, he was made for Yahweh. His whole being yearns for God. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My body faints for you. This reminds me of the Old Testament injunction where God tells the people of Israel that their primary law, that they, their one commandment, their marching orders in life is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. That word strength is a Hebrew word, ma'od, okay? No great translation in English. We say strength, might, something like that. When you begin to use it in Hebrew, this is the best translation, your muchness. Your muchness. It's your everything. Every nerve ending in your body must tingle at the sound of Yahweh. Every breath you take should be 
an inhalation of who God is and an exhalation of his praise. You shall love the Lord your God with your muchness. What about us? I know I realized when I was even saying that, I said, well, that's not me. I don't always feel that. Most of the time, I don't feel that. What do we hunger and thirst for? You see, we were made with an insatiable desire. Did you know that? That your lack of satisfaction is completely normal. That God has created you to be unsatisfied. It's an astounding remark, isn't it? It's one half of the equation, you see. The other half is God is the only thing on earth or in heaven that can supply that insatiable need. The one who always gives and continues to give and will infinitely give according to your need for satisfaction. You were made to be unsatisfied. But we look to all these other things, don't we? If I get the right degree, if I get the right job, if my kid quit acting like this, if my friend did this, if everyone did what I wanted in my life and orchestrate and everything worked out the way I wanted it to, life would be grand. But then I need more money and another home and a better car. And it never ends. It never ends. We're drinking spiritual salt water when we're not looking to God to be the true source and, 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 and satisfaction for our spiritual thirst. Do you feel that today? I mean, are you weary? Are you thirsty for something that you just can't put your finger on? I don't know what it is, but I keep looking and looking and looking, and as soon as I find it, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. It's an interesting spiritual question you should ask yourself. Fill in the blank. I will be okay when? Whatever you just put in there is an idol. That is what you're looking to for satisfaction and not Jesus Christ. Remember that desire is actually a God-given desire for him. So what do we do with that? Let's see what David says. David says, Because I hunger and thirst for you, verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So here's the first principle for this morning. If you're keeping notes, write this down. When you are thirsty, behold God's power and glory. Behold God's power and glory. Look what David does. David focuses his attention upon God by faith. Remember, he's in the wilderness. He says, But I have looked upon you in your sanctuary. So David is saying, I reckon you in my spiritual mind in your tabernacle. I see you. Isaiah in, uh, in Isaiah 6 says, in the, year of king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple that's in heaven. It says, and smoke filled. And the foundation shook. And Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. David is saying the same thing. I look upon the, on God in his sanctuary. It doesn't just say that he looks upon him. He uses a very interesting word here. He uses the word chazah. It means to behold. It's the same word often used of prophets saying, I see God doing something. It's a forward-looking vision. It's a spiritual vision. It's a beholding of God. Elders in the book of Exodus, when they ate with God on the mountain, it says they chazad him. 
they beheld God. David is saying here quite intentionally that he doesn't wait for God to show up in his life. He sees God. He looks to God. He beholds God in his glory. I mean, this lack of intentionality, we do this all the time, don't we? We're passive worshipers. Going through life, driving my car, something good happens. Oh, excellent. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Change the channel. This guy cuts me off. We ain't worshiping. We need to be active worshipers who choose each day to take every moment as an opportunity to huzzah God, behold God in his temple, to see his power and his might. But we're so fickle, aren't we? We are so fickle. If nothing good comes up, we don't even think about it. We don't think about him. David's intention comes from his sure recognition that nothing, no one can satisfy him like Yahweh can satisfy him. That God is superior over everything and anything. So how do we do that today? How do we behold God's power and glory today? There's no tabernacle. There's no temple. What is it that David's seeing? I would argue today what we see, who we see, is Jesus Christ. When we seek to behold the power and glory of God, we look to his Son in whom God's power and glory resides forever. We look to God's holy place, better yet, the Holy One. Jesus is not soft. We make Jesus soft. We make Jesus into this uber-kind, uber-loving, plugging our own misunderstanding of love, uber-tolerant, man who is just a great teacher, who will one day come back and lead his flock in the pasture beside still waters. I'm banking on that Jesus, by the way. I need that. But Jesus is also a mighty warrior whose name is written down his thigh, whose robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies. Sounds harsh, huh? That's our champion. That is our Jesus. The might of God in God incarnate. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, one of the most impactful passages of the story, at least for me, occurs during a conversation between the youngest child, Lucy, and her sister, Susan, and Mr. Beaver. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I just don't want to do this in a British accent. I'll ruin it. I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, Mr. Beaver. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. That is the God we serve. That is the Savior we follow, the good and powerful, mighty Jesus Christ. Jesus reigns as king on high, and one day at the Father's command, he will return to bring justice, peace, and vindication. Vindication. I look at social media, and we, we're getting bombarded, y'all. I don't know about you who are on social media. We're getting bombarded. 
and not just bombarded with images, but the church is taking hits. And it's easy to say, we're losing this battle. Yet by faith we know the scripture is clear that Christ will return and reign, and guess what? Prove us right. Prove us right. Not only do we see the might of Christ, we see the glory of Christ. The word glory in the Old Testament comes from the word kavod. It means weighty. It means when we stand before God, we feel the weight of his intensity. That is the glory of God. That is the glory of God. There are times, I don't know about you, but there were times when I was in Israel, and even here I walk into churches, big cathedrals, where if you whisper, it sounds like you're screaming. And I can't breathe. Everyone gets quiet. That's the weight. That's the weight. The intensity and the majesty. Some theologians call it the mysterium tremendum. That awful, that awful mystery. But our Lord is not just strength and might and glory and justice. He's also love. And that love rightly understood, oh, is it good? Who is it good? Verse 3, because your steadfast love is, listen to this, better than life. Better than life, my lips will praise you. David does just not see the glory and might of Christ or of God, but he also his un his undying, faithful love. These must go together. If we don't put the love of Christ with the power and might of Christ, we don't have Christ. We have a God of our own choosing. And so it's important that we hold these two in tension. We bring our misconceptions about who God is. I talked a little bit about it. We do this with love. Love means I let you do whatever you want, right? Love means I say what you do is okay because it's your life. You do what you want. I just want you to be happy. That is not love. Love is telling you the hard truth and wanting what's best for you out of a deep compassion. Compassion. Our thirst for the true love of God should prompt us to... <laughs> when we don't do it right, when we don't look in the right place, it should prompt us to paraphrase Johnny Lee, looking for love in all the wrong places, right? We look everywhere around us, except to the one true source of it. David uses this word, and I use it all the time, and the word love here is chesed. Chesed. It's an undying, never-ending, tender mercies, backed by the character of God kind of love. It's I'm going to marry you and never, ever, ever, ever leave you kind of love. It's the, even if you marry, in the book of Hosea, a prostitute who will cheat on you again and again and again and again, I will never leave you kind of love. This is the covenantal love that God has for us. A love that says, no matter what you do, because I've saved you by grace, I will love you. It's a love that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Certainly, it carries passionate tones as well. God's passionate for us. Not only does he promise to love us, he gets this. This is a big one. He wants to love us. Not only does God love us, maybe this is a better way of saying it, he likes us. He likes us. He likes you. This is why David can say that God's love is better than life itself. Think about that. If given the choice to live without God's love or die, the answer is clear. That is a profound statement. Jesus says the same thing, Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man 
If he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The answer here is nothing. There's nothing you can. The soul is infinitely valuable. Those who do not know the true love, the hesed of God in Christ, don't know what they're missing. When we understand what is at stake in our salvation and the depths of God's unconditional love for us, the love that motivated it, we will understand what David says in verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, O Lord, I will lift up my hands. Second principle, when you are thirsty, praise God for his steadfast love. Steadfast love. David dedicates his entire life at this point to the blessing and worship of God. Someone asked me, what does that mean? Bless God. I know God blesses me, but how can I bless God? I'm not God. A couple of things. One is the word blessing means to exalt, talk well of, to bestow good things upon. So it's kind of the way that we worship God. It also comes from a word that means knee. It's a verb that actually comes from a noun. So this idea of bowing. This idea of bowing. And it brings this beautiful picture of this relationship between us and the Father. That even though God blesses us and bestows things about on us, bestows things upon us, God in his, frankly, in his humility, deems that we should bestow something on him too. And so we should. What about you? Why do you praise God? What do you think about when you praise the Lord? When you sit here, what do you praise? I worry sometimes about us. I'm going to be honest. We'll sing a song. There's a few second gap in between. And the only thing I hear are crickets. It's like, what did we just sing about? We should be clapping. We should be praising. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing that. How vocal are we with our praise? Well, I don't worship that way. The Bible says, wait till the 22nd, y'all. We're going to have a loud noise in here. That's all I'm going to say. We got kids with tambourines, okay? We're going to praise the Lord how God wants us to praise him with a loud shout and musical instruments. This is God speaking. And so we need to do it. Sometimes we struggle praising God for his love because we cannot understand the depth of it. Look at what Christ did, though. He died on your behalf when he didn't need to. David goes on in verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I put bacon in there when I see that. (laughs) How much do I love bacon? A lot. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Some of you are struggling with looking to God alone for satisfaction because you cannot see how he's going to fulfill your needs. I sense this. I do this all the time, and I know you got to do this. Welcome to the Christian life. This is the battle that goes on within us when we walk the life of faith. It's a life of trust. It's always difficult because our sin nature and the whole order of the creation is is in a state right now that seeks to wedge itself between us and God. It's crazy. We refuse to believe God who we cannot see or what he has said and believe the things of this world which we can see. Even though the payoff for believing the things of this world is death and the payoff for believing the things of God is life. It's totally backwards. Listen to how David says it here. He says, my soul will be satisfied. David expects satisfaction. You see, we often expect too little from God, and that's part of the problem. We expect too little. It's like, 
I talk to people, single people all the time. I'm living a righteous life. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I've, I've lived a life of purity. I've waited for the right person. I've expected God to deliver. Shouldn't I expect a husband or wife? And oftentimes it moves people to settle. But what if we approached it, and I say this humbly because I've not been single like this. I say this humbly, I do. But what if we continually told ourselves again and again, and it's not just singleness, this is everything in our life. What if we continually told ourselves, no, God will. What if we trusted God by faith and expected him to deliver big, big? How might our life look different? How might our perspective be changed? How might we weather the storms and the temptations that we have in this life? He says, my soul will be satisfied. My praise will be on your lips in verse 6. When I remember you upon my bed, I will meditate and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David is declaring by faith the outcome of his gazing upon God, and he declares, I will be satisfied. Not I might. Not if it feels good. By faith and in confidence of the Lord, he says, I will be satisfied. When I, when I remember you on my bed, I don't know about you guys, but I have sleepless nights sometimes. It's hard being in ministry. It's hard being a parent, a friend. It's hard being a Christian. There's many times in my life, just recently, that I wake up in the middle of the night and I say, uh-oh, here we go. God's about to smack me around a little bit. And it always starts with me worrying. What's going to happen? How can I manipulate the situation to get the outcome that I want with the least amount of pain? Beds are a terrible place sometimes, aren't they? They're supposed to be a place where the children of God rest their head and have no worry in the world because God protects them. Yet they're a place of worry, a place of loneliness, a place of sadness and anger. Frankly, a place of temptation. I was at a conference two weeks ago on Hebrew. That's why you're getting so much of it, this sermon. You'll get more of it, I'm sure. And I was all alone in a hotel room near Louisville, Kentucky. Laney had to work, so she was up here. And I'm stuck in a hotel by myself. Not a great place to be. Not a great place to be. We had prayed about it, prepared for it. We had talked about it before we go. And I had a plan in place and what I was going to do. I was going to go to recovery meetings in the evenings. I was going to work on some planning that had to get done. I was going to memorize Hebrew vocabulary. So exciting, right? But I filled up my whole night. 11 o'clock came. Time for bed. Guess what? Eyes wide open. It's as if all of my planning went out the window and I'm stuck with my mind. Not a great place to be. Not a great place to be. I thought about everything. I worried about everything. Thought about things I shouldn't have thought about. I really struggled. And there was a moment when the Spirit said, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? It's me you're supposed to be thinking about. And so I did. I said, all right, well, if this is what it's going to be, Lord, you're keeping me awake. Lord, I'm going to focus on you. And I spent, I don't know how long, because I woke up the next morning. I spent time thinking about what God was going to do in my problems. This is a tough one, Lord. I don't know what you're going to, how you're going to crack this nut, but you're going to do it. 
And it was a time of worship. I think perhaps there's more worship that happens in the middle of the night, on a bed in the heart of a believer crying out to God, than ever occurs on a Sunday morning in church. That is everyday worship. Maybe I should say every night worship. That is the worship of feet on the ground. This is life. Lord, you have to do something. Lord, I trust you. Lord, you do it. David has a solid ground for his confidence and for his satisfaction in the Lord. In verse 7, he says, When I'm laying in my bed, I'll meditate on you. I will remember you in the watches of the night. Verse 7, For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Third principle. When you're thirsty, remember God's protection. When you're thirsty, remember God's protection. It says that we are in the shadow of God's wings. Isn't that a beautiful expression? It's like a mother hen putting her wings out and holding her chicks. Jesus himself longed to do this with the people of Israel. In Matthew 23, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often, this is Jesus, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you are not willing. Perhaps the most dramatic expression of God's protection for the people of the Old Test- in the Old Testament is the Passover account, right? We all know the Passover account. God is going to bring plagues upon the people of Egypt for not letting the people of Israel go. And before the 10th plague, God tells Moses to tell the people to sacrifice a lamb, to place the blood over the lintel and doorposts, and that when the angel of death passes over the house to strike the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt, that he will see the blood and pass over the house. Now, we see this as a clear picture of Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament calls Jesus our Passover lamb. The word Passover, though, comes from a Hebrew word. Here's another one, Pesach. Pesach. Pesach means, it can mean Passover, certainly, and I think we've sort of put that meaning on it, but it really means to hover over, to hover over. So we can imagine the angel of death, whoever, whatever that might look like, hovering over. In Isaiah 31, it's used like this. It says, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem, protect. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare it and rescue it. So it is likely that the Passover account is intended to convey more about the love of God's people. His protection, his loving, compassionate protection for God's people than it does simply over about the power over his enemies. So I read this in a a book. I, I started to go down this trail from a Hebrew book, and I thought, oh my gosh, that totally changes the way I understand the Passover, doesn't it? Now when I read that, I think of God's people huddled in a house, covered in the blood, and God protecting them as the angel of death passes. It does give a different picture, doesn't it? Than one simply of wrath and justice and punishment. When death and destruction approach us, God hovers over us to protect us in the shadow of his wings, insulating us from the danger and often protecting us from ourselves. Protecting us from ourselves. If you know the Lord Jesus and you call upon him as your Savior, you are in the protection of his wings. The question is, is will you sing for joy while you're there? 
I think there are times in my life, certainly in the lives of people around me that I see, is that they're in the protection of God's wings and they're not singing for joy. They're saying, man, it's too hot in here. It's too dark. I can't see anything. We need to relish the fact that God loves us to such a degree with a compassionate, merciful love, protective love, that he surrounds us with his wings. In verse 8, he says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This word cling, same word in the Hebrew Old Testament in chapter 3. Actually, it's chapter 2 of Genesis, where it talks about man clinging. Husband and wife clinging, cleave. I will cleave to her. This idea of being close. The grammar and syntax here suggests it's more like following close behind. David's saying, my soul will follow close behind you. You remember being a kid and your dad went someplace that was scary to you? For me, it was the basement. I did not like the basement. I lived in the basement in the furthest bedroom from the stairs in the basement. And so what I would do is I'd flip the lights on to the stairs. I'd go down the stairs. I'd flip the lights on to the first set of lights. I'd go back up the stairs. I'd flip the light off down there. Then I'd go to the second set of lights down there, flip those on, go back to the previous light, flip that one off, then go into my bedroom, flip that light on, then go back out. So I was never in the dark, ever. But if my dad went down there first, I stayed close behind. David's saying, my soul, I will cling to you, Lord, will follow you wherever you go, and I'm going to be close because the danger is real. And he declares, my right hand, your right hand, Lord, upholds me. David turns to those, after all of this declaration of faith about what he's going to look at, how he's going to be satisfied, who God is, and he turns his attention to those who do not look to God for his power, love, and protection. Verse 9 and 10. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Because God is faithful and because God is loving, because God is powerful and mighty, David can know with certainty what will happen to his haters. We got haters. We got haters who are humans. And we got haters who are demons. And the same applies to both. They do not want us to walk in the way of the Lord. They do not. Yet David declares that those who would seek to exalt themselves against God and God's anointed king will come to nothing. Will come to nothing. But the king, in verse 11, final verse, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David reminds himself of God's hand in his life. David was king solely by God's grace, by, the, by God's good pleasure. David says the king will rejoice. He brings to mind the idea that he's royalty. This is something that we need to do. We don't do this. We serve a king, and you're the king's kid. So what is a king's kid called? A prince and a princess. There's a word in French, debonair. I'm sure you probably heard it. I learned it from Beauty and the Beast, from Lumiere. So debonair. It means of good breeding, of good heritage, of a good lineage, from good ancestry. 
debonair. Do you walk your Christian life with debonair? Are you a debonair Christian who looks at their ancestry, their spiritual heritage, and says, oh yeah, I'm royalty. Peter says it in the New Testament. We're a royal priesthood. We are children of the king. Are you satisfied in that? Does that satisfy your soul that one day you're going to be with God in glory? You'll be walking the earth, the new earth, and recognize he did all this. That I'm somebody important. Not only that, I'm his kid. We can never forget the fact that we were called to something greater. We are called to be someone different. And we should step into that instead of run from it. So finally, when you're thirsty, anticipate your redemption. Anticipate your redemption. Sometimes we search for the fresh water of God where there's only salt water of sin. We don't believe God's capable or willing to satisfy our needs. We need to declare our confidence in God's deliverance by faith and look ahead, look forward to the day when all that he has promised us will come true. Even Shocking, even when our feelings tell us otherwise. Even when our feelings tell us otherwise. The ups and downs of life can get us feeling as if there's no hope, that the fight is too hard, that the odds of victory are too slim. But God, who knows the end from the beginning, has already declared what he sees. And guess what God sees? We win. Do you know why we win? Because he wins. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will come through the king's gate in Jerusalem, and will take his rightful place. He will reign on earth as he is reigning now in heaven. And all of our hopes and dreams will be fulfilled. All of our longing and need for satisfaction will be fulfilled. But until that day, look to what David does here. Till that day, trust by faith that it's so. Hold out for your redemption and choose to be satisfied today in the Lord, not waiting until I'll be okay when. When you're thirsty, behold God's power and glory. When you're thirsty, praise God for his steadfast love. When you're thirsty, remember God's protection, that protection in the shadow of his wings. When you're thirsty for God, anticipate your redemption. So what are you going to do? You have a choice. I said all of this. How are you going to put it into practice? How are you going to leave here today? Ready to worship the Lord every day and seek your satisfaction in him. I don't know about you, but I'm going to drink deeply from the water of life. I'm making the decision. I'm going to drink from the water of life I'm, going to, I'm tired of drinking salt water. I'm tired of feeling the sickness and disillusionment that comes from drinking the salt water of this life. So let's make the decision today as a family, as the children, as the prince and princesses of our king. Let's make the decision today about what we need to spew out and drink deeply from the well of living water that never runs dry. Jesus, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that the Lord Jesus is the sole source of our satisfaction, that as he promised the woman at the well, that he is a fount of water, that it bubbles up, that he will never run dry. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying that to our lives. We apologize, Lord. We confess that there are times we would rather drink salt water. That we don't even know that it's bad for us. But Lord, open the eyes of our heart. Make us to see the truth of your word. And give us a taste of the satisfaction that we have so longed for in this life. Even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media, at GBC Elm. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbcelm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.